In a world that is filled with power players, right now Trump Tower is in the news. If you're going in or coming out of Trump Tower, isn't that interesting? Trump Tower, Tower of Babel. I don't know if there's a parallel. I'm not saying. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be political at all. But what I, I, I it is interesting. The, the power players. All of a sudden, everybody is gravitating toward President-elect Trump because he's got the cards now. Because he's the man in power. And people who are adamantly opposed to him and people who six, eight months ago said horrible things about him, personal digs at him, are now warming up to him. Why? Because he's the power broker. And that's the world we live in. And it is increasingly a world of globalists and social Darwinists and establishment types and the elite... And in this world, it's so fascinating to me that a small-town carpenter out of Nazareth, uh, an itinerant rabbi from the Galilee, a, a crucified Jew on Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem, almost seems more out of place in this world than even perhaps he did in the first century of mighty Rome. He is so different He is so unique. And if you pause and ask the question, do you want to be a power broker in the kingdom of God? Take a knee. Because the only way is to come into the key position of weakness. It is so topsy-turvy, upside-down, oxymoronical. Paul in the epilogue now, which is what we're coming to, of the fool's speech... This whole speech that culminates in verse 10 of chapter 11 with him saying, For when I am weak, then I am strong? What? That is upside down. That is not how the world works. That's a bizarre view of power. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Until we realize, as we talked about Sunday, that the moment of greatest godly power displayed in all eternity was on the cross. It was in that moment of utter weakness as Jesus hung there, the power of God was displayed. And so Paul wrote, foolishly, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You want to make a home for power, the power, the true power of God in your life? It's in your weakness. Let His power Be perfected, not in your strengths, not in your abilities, not in all that you have accomplished. Let His power be perfected in your weakness. Nurture faith, even if it's in a bed of thorns. Okay, side note, we had a really interesting discussion earlier today, several of us talking about healing versus remission. Healing versus remission. Is it healing to say someone whose cancer seems to have stopped, seems to not be continuing, is that healing or is it just remission? Well, if you're a doctor, it's called remission. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's called healing. That's what it is. What if it comes back? What does that have to do with anything? Healing is healing. But in the midst of this conversation and talking about this, I I was thinking... Oh, but don't forget the value of the thorns. Don't forget the value of pain. Don't forget the value of heartache and difficulty and struggle and challenge in your life. Don't forget how close those things bring you to God. In my weakness, when I am in the bed of thorns, that's the place that faith grows. So trust God even when the stakes are sharp or high. For as Jesus foretold, the day is coming when the meek shall inherit the earth. Verse 11, continuing on in the midst of this fool's speech of power and weakness, Paul says, I have become foolish. (laughs) You yourselves compelled me. It's your fault, Corinth. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect... Was I inferior to the most eminent, the super apostles? Even though I, he says, am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not become a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. Oh, I'm so sorry I didn't charge you. 
I mean, the, the sarcasm is dripping at this point. It continues to drip. And by the way, it is godly sarcasm. All you got to do is read the Bible a little bit before you start to discover that God uses irony and sarcasm very well, very pointedly. He knows how to turn a phrase. He knows how to turn a sharp two-edged sword. And so don't think that simply because Paul's being sarcastic that for in this moment he's not inspired. No, I believe he absolutely is. And the sarcasm is important. Paul is making now his final defense of his apostleship to the church in the Corinthian capital of Achaia. Kind of a final defense. And he says what a true apostle looks like. And in these three verses, or four verses, I want you to think about this. What does a true apostle look like? Paul calls himself a true apostle as opposed to these eminent, these super, these false apostles. These phony balonies. And he says a handful of things here. Note this. Number one, the true apostle. Before I tell you this, let me just say, this is not about someone else. This is about you. Because an apostle is one who is sent. And every one of us are at least apostles with little a's. You may not be an apostle as in given the gift of apostleship, Ephesians chapter 4, but you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a sent one. You have an apostolic calling, which is to go into all the world bringing the gospel, right? That, that is, so we are all sent ones. So this has direct application to you and to me, not just to some distant 12 guys, okay? So the true apostle, think about yourself, is number one, rarely appreciated. Rarely appreciated. As he says in verse 11, I should have been commended by you. The shock here is that they didn't commend or appreciate or thank or even applaud Paul. Faith is rarely applauded on this planet. It's not something that people elevate. It's not something that people tend to say, Oh, you're a person of great faith. Wow, I'm impressed. What they say is, Oh, you're one of those believers. Well, I'm into science. I'm logical. You just have faith. And that's truly the view of the world. The twelve came to Jesus and they came asking for faith. They said, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus' response is amazing. Just listen to this. It's unexpected and it's instructive. It's Luke 17, verse 5. They say, increase our faith. And Jesus replies, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you'd say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Okay, we've heard that, we know that. So, so faith is powerful, obviously. But listen to what else he says. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? But he will not say to him, or will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. What's the point, Jesus? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So the reality is a true apostle is rarely appreciated. We are not looking for commendation. And so Paul literally says here, there at the end of verse 11, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. That's the right perspective. Uh, Not self-denigrating, but just, I mean, who am I, really? Y'all should have commended me because I brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, but in reality, that's not why I brought it, and I would have brought it anyway. So the attitude of the true apostle is you're not out looking for appreciation because you know you're not going to get it. You're just not. That's not what it's about. Secondly, the true apostle is rarely appreciated and is always attested. Always attested or confirmed. A true apostle knows he or she is an apostle. There's a confirmation that comes with it. And in Paul's case, he says, the signs of a true apostle, verse 12, were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now, I'm not going to deal with perseverance, but that is very much an aspect of a true apostle. You know someone is sent by Jesus because they just keep going. And they don't stop. And no matter what hits them in life, they continue on. But, he says, 
My apostleship was confirmed. It was attested to you. Signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, if you're like me, you hear three words like that and you think synonyms. Signs, wonders, miracles. They're all the same thing. Move on. Go to the next verse. Don't. Because while they are all synonymous, they are all different aspects. And very interesting because signs is that Greek word semion. And you need to think of, anytime you see signs in the Bible, think of a road sign. What does a road sign do? It directs you to where you're going. So a sign literally is, is a, a supernatural thing that points you to the Father. That directs you to where you're supposed to go. That's what a sign is. Now that's different than wonders. Wonders are teros. Teros in the Greek is, means a portent or an omen. But get this, understand this. Wonders are specifically related to answered prayer. So, Andrew Lefebvre's healing is a wonder. It's a wonder. It's also a sign because we know that the one who did it is Jesus. So it points us to Him. But it's a wonder in that prayer was poured out and God answered that prayer. So it's both a sign and a wonder. Miracles are dunamis. You Bible students know what dunamis is. It's power. It's the same word Jesus used in Acts 1.8 when He said you will receive power. You will receive dunamis. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria even to the remotest part of the earth. Miracles. Get this. How is it different? Simeon's signs are signs that or miracles that direct Wonders are responses, answered prayer. But miracles here, dunamis, is intrinsic power. It's a power that has been given to you and flows out from you by the Holy Spirit. It's also translated virtue. It's translated might. And it is Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit. So someone who walks with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and under the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which again is a phrase we ought not be uncomfortable with. Simply the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. His power becomes intrinsic in the life of the believer and works out from us and works through us and bubbles up as a river within us, Jesus would say. Rivers of living water, intrinsic virtue, the power of God. And Paul says, an apostle... My apostleship, the signs of a true apostle, was seen in all three of these. Signs which point to God. And wonders which are answered prayer. And miracles which are the power. And note this, the attested apostle, though unappreciated, does not flaunt these things. They don't go around saying, I'm a miracle worker. I got the signs. Here's your sign. I've got the power. It's me. Jesus said very clearly, Mark 16, 17, signs will accompany or follow those who have believed. He doesn't say those who believe chase down signs. Believers, apostles, need to be looking for and presenting signs to prove their ministry. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said signs are going to accompany you. That They'll happen. You just believe. You follow after me and the signs will come. The miracles will come. The wonders will happen. You don't have to worry about that. And you might say, well then why does Paul mention them? Eh? Is Paul flaunting these? No. If he is flaunting at all, it's as a fool. Remember, he is in the middle of the fool's speech. And in the fool's speech, he is acting. He is playing the part of a fool. And he is, again, not attesting these things to himself, but to the legitimacy of the gospel message that he brought. And I've talked about this the last couple of weeks. It was critical for the Corinthian church to realize that Paul was legitimate because the message was legitimate. And for Paul, the gospel was everything. So he would fight for his reputation because it had an impact on the gospel. If it didn't matter, he wouldn't care. And, and throughout, he says things like, I'm a nobody, it's not about me, it's about Christ and Him crucified. It has nothing to do with me, although when I was with you, I was a true apostle, and you saw that in signs, wonders, and miracles. Why do you say that, Paul? I want you to know that the doctrine that I brought 
was God-breathed and did not come from me. And these super-apostles are claiming things that are not true. And they are not attested to in the same way I was when I was with you. The message was vital to Paul. Paul's saying, in essence, compare the supernatural occurrences with the nobody of a servant who performed them. I came and all these things were happening. And you also know that I was a mealy-mouthed little guy. Because remember, that's what they were saying about Paul. In presence, he is unimpressive. Yeah, Paul wasn't un- he was unimpressive, but the miracles, the power, the signs, remarkable. What does that tell you? God was in that. And it wasn't Paul. I laugh about this. I remember uh, Lisa Adelot told me this one time. She said, I couldn't believe it the first time I walked into your house and saw you playing Plants vs. Zombies. <laughs> On my iPad, I was sitting there playing Plants vs. Zombies. She said, it blew away everything that I thought you were. Because she didn't know me that well at that point, and I was, I was Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick is playing Plants vs. Zombies? It just shattered the whole image right there. And I said, well, Lisa, I've told you over and over I'm an idiot. Please understand that. Jesus put it this way. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. See your good works, yes, but glorify Him. He gets the glory. Remember how the people responded to Jesus' miracles. What did they say? Matthew 15, 31. The crowd marveled. They saw the mute speaking, the crippled restoring, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified Jesus. No. They glorified the God of Israel. Jesus had a way of performing signs, wonders, and miracles. And when He did, people went, praise the Lord. Immediately the praise went heavenward and not manward. And that's a sign of a true apostle. And I think we see that in Paul. Also, the true apostle, number three, does not take advantage. Does not take advantage. Verse 14. Here for this third time, I am ready to come to you. By the way, Paul's going to say that twice. Just wanted to point that out. Here for this third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And there's some irony there because he's saying, man, I poured my heart out for you and you're, and you're giving me grief? Should it be that way? And then he says, but be that as it may, which I'm pretty sure is where John Corson got that. But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. (laughs) Again, irony. Verse 17, certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you. Have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him, and Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Now Paul is pointing out Titus. He's bringing Titus in. He he talks about Titus a lot, by the way. In 2 Corinthians, he mentions Titus eight times. In all of Paul's letters, he will mention Titus ten times. Eight of them in this letter. Why is that? Because the people at Corinth really dug Titus. It's obvious from the interaction in the letters of Paul that they like this Titus character. He's a good guy. You know, I'm sending Titus back to you. Well, that would be exciting for the people at Corinth because they really like Titus. So Paul is saying, look, when Titus was with you, number one, I sent him. What does that mean? Well, it legitimizes Paul. And you know Titus and how he was with you. Was I any different than Titus was? Oh, no, no. Titus, me, me, and, and Titus... He's a significant player when it comes to Corinth. Paul, outside of 2 Corinthians, only mention him once in 2 Timothy, and he'll mention him once in Titus, and that's it. Which is good, you know, that he would mention Titus in Titus. But Paul says, in essence, in this section, he says, look at our record of expenditures. Here's our, our balance sheet. Here's my checkbook. Look at it. 
Not only mine, but also Titus and the other brother, who the other brother we don't know who he was, maybe Luke, not sure. But he says, we went out of our way not to take advantage of you. And I talked about that last week, the whole tent-making ministry of Paul, what he was doing by not taking a, a, a drachma from Corinth. He would not take money, though that was typically what was done by the, you know, the prophets and the philosophers who came through town. They always got big bucks. Paul didn't draw a salary when he spoke to Wall Street. I mean, when he spoke to Corinth, he simply gave of himself. And in two ways, Paul makes it absolutely clear that his, his personal ministry to Corinth was inferior to the super apostles. Two ways. Number one, we did not take advantage of the church at Corinth. The super apostles did. And were. And Paul makes that distinction. But the second way is in not taking advantage, but in abusing the church at Corinth. And we talked about that last week. Uh, chapter 11, verse 20, which, which says, You tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, devours you, takes advantage of you, exalts himself, anyone who hits you in the face. But then listen, Paul said, To my shame I must say that we have been weak by comparison. They're hitting you in the face, we didn't. So I guess we were kind of weak. They took advantage of you. We didn't. We were weak in in that comparison as well. And in enslaving you. And all these things. So we didn't do that. So if that power... I don't want anything to do with it. I would rather be in weakness and be Jesus to you, Corinth. So the true apostle, someone sent by God, is rarely appreciated, always attested, does not take advantage, and will not abuse either people or the privilege of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a good thing to know as a follower and as a sent one of Jesus. Verse 19. All this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. This is what's really been going on. I'm not just proving myself. That would be ludicrous. That would be foolish. What I'm doing, Paul says, what I have been doing is trying to build you up. Building you up in the truth. Building you up in in, in what is right and what is real. And I love the last word he uses in verse 19, beloved. That's how he feels about Corinth. You know what the word beloved is in the Greek? Agapetos. It's the variant of agape. It's not, uh, you know, from Philadelphia. It's not any of the other Greek forms of love. Beloved is agapetos. It's that unconditional, it's the love you feel towards someone that has no bounds. Dearly beloved. And that's the word Paul uses for Corinth. Remember, this letter was sent to comfort and to exhort and to build up and yes, to urge where necessary. And so Paul will reiterate this upbuilding statement at the very end of the letter. We'll get to it in just a few minutes. But right now, what he does is he sets the stage for his return to Corinth. And in love, it's serious. Verse 20. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish. He says that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. (laughs) Paul, what are you doing here? Have you ever written someone a letter letting them know you're coming for a visit and said something like that? (laughs) Hey, I'm looking forward to being with you, but I am afraid we're going to fight. And it may get a little contentious, so uh, you know there may be some disturbances and gossip and arrogance when I get there. What, what's he doing here? Some might say he's using reverse psychology. I'm going to throw this out there so that when I get there, the people of Corinth go, no way we're going to act like that. We're going to prove you wrong. That, that may be part of it. But I think it's more. I think what Paul is doing here is he is shining a bright, beaming flashlight into the dark corners of the heart. He is showing Corinth what could happen very clearly. And in so doing, he's diffusing the devil. He is ripping the rug out from under Satan. He is deflating the tempter's tires. 
Because he's calling it out ahead of time. Now listen, get this, because this is so vital in church fellowship and in how we function as believers, and it is completely different than the world. We walk in the light. We don't play politics. We don't cut the corners. We don't do end runs on people. Well, Rick, I've been in churches where they did. I know, we're not supposed to. We are supposed to walk in openness and honesty and authenticity, which is what Paul is doing. He's telling them right out, look, I know where we've been. There has been strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip. But remember the last time I was there? And we talked about that, how he points out that last trip was not a happy one. Nobody was happy at that visit. Did not go well. And Paul's saying, when I come back, I don't want that again. I don't want to experience that again. So I'm telling you ahead of time, remember this? Remember all that? How ugly? Let's, let's not do that. And by shining the light into it, again, he's letting the wind out of Satan's sails. Because he's calling out what could happen very honestly. And again, this is why authentic, genuine fellowship among the people of Jesus is so vital that we don't play games with each other. That if I'm hurt, I'm going to let you know I'm hurt. And, and not to make you feel bad, but just so that we can work on that together. If, if you've done something to offend, well, I'm going to sit down and talk to you because I love you. I'm not going to go to 12 other people and tell them how you offended me. And that kind of honesty, that's what John talks about. I know you're familiar with the verse, but he says if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. How much deceit goes on in Christian circles saying, oh, I have fellowship with God. But did you hear what that brother did? It's a lie. You can't have fellowship with Him and deny fellowship in the body. It's a falsehood. It's playing dumb and, and it's feigning ignorance in relationship. But John writes 1 John 1, seven. but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all transgression. That's the way to go. Oh, but Rick, if we walk in the light, we risk. Yes, we do. Could end up crucified just for being who you are in Jesus. Walking in the light, however, drives out the dark. It just doesn't leave any room. Honesty and openness and authenticity allows no room for shadows. And Paul is shining the light. And, you know, the light is revealing there are some ugly things there that just need to go away. But if you ignore them, or if you play passive-aggressive, or you do games, those things are all going to just stay there. And they will continue to brood. Have you ever known... And I say this with, with honestly with heartache. Have you ever known of a, a church fellowship that just went through split after split after split after split? Down the road is another church that's doing just fine, but this one it's over and over and over. Why is that? Because there's darkness that has not yet been shown the light. And if the light could be shown in there and all that ugly stuff could get swept out and the cockroaches could scurry off to some other place, maybe the bar down the street, that would be cool. But this stuff continues, and that's why you see one church go through the same stuff again and again, because things are not being honestly addressed. Paul is honestly addressing what it could be like. Paul is also the one who in Ephesians 4.27 said, Do not give the devil an opportunity. Just don't give him a foothold. Well, how do I do that? Shine the light, man. Into the corners. Be honest. Be open. Verse 21, he goes on, he says, And I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. The word there really is more, He may humble me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Remember that from 1 Corinthians? The immoral man and the, and the, the sensuality that Paul dealt with pretty brutally in that letter. Just talk about shining a light on sexual immorality among all kinds of immorality. Paul just, you know, just beaming that light in there. And, and he says, you know what? I don't want to come back and mourn over this stuff again. Now listen. The word he uses for mourn in the Greek is a specific word used related to mourning over death. 
It's a death word. And it could be spiritual death. If he doesn't want to mourn over that, it could also be physical death as a result of sin. But we need to remember, especially in the first century, and we've kind of watered a lot of this down by now, 2,000 years later. But in the first century, when an apostle warned of mourning over something like death, it's because it has happened. It's because it could happen. What do you mean? Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. All they did was lie about what they gave the church. How big a deal is that? Have you ever lied about what you offered a church? I mean, I hope not. They both lied and they dropped dead. And in Acts chapter 5, we're told that great fear came over the whole church. And over all who heard about these things. What? You mean if you lie in that place? I'm not going there. (laughs) I mean, you want to drive down attendance? (laughs) Death penalty for lying. (laughs) Done. They died. Think about Acts 13. Paul met up, Paul and Barnabas met up with a sorcerer on Cyprus, on the island of Cyprus, named Bar-Jesus. Also named Elymas, which means enlightened one. And he opposed them, and Paul said, you're going to go blind. And he was blind automatically. So there were immediate impact in, in the negative people dying people going blind it's like I don't know about this Christian thing and what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 29 he who eats and drinks talking about communion the Lord's table eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep for what reason Paul of using communion. Paul directly connects certain people's death in Corinth with the abuse of the fellowship at the Lord's table. So this is a very real issue, and Paul understood and taught the direct, even immediate parallel between sin and death. We separate it out so far that we don't even realize that death is often a result of sin. But Paul saw it as a a very immediate thing, And you might say, well, Paul, why not just avoid the church of Corinth altogether? Why not just go focus on the happy, growing churches? Well, he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I'm coming back to you. Why, Paul? Because they're his agapetos. They're his beloved. He cares so deeply for Corinth. And he mourns over the sin, over the pain, over the fallout, even over the death that he has seen there. And so he says, I don't want to come back and see that again. But I have to come back. And I am coming back. Why, Paul? Because every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And as I pointed out before, he says twice, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And Paul is equating, and this is great Torah law here. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Every fact, you have to have two or three witnesses. If you're going to stone someone to death over adultery, you have to have two or three witnesses. You can't just go on the word of one person. And so Paul says, I'm going beyond just visiting you once or visiting you twice. I'm visiting a third time because I want everything to be established and clear just as it would be in court. Just as it would be with two or three witnesses, Paul's very visits to Corinth stood as testimony, stood as witnesses. And by the way, there's divine precedent for that. What do you mean? For what? For visits being witnesses. God does it. With every generation, God comes to witness. What's going on? Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, implied generations, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And if he stopped right there, that'd be nice. But he continues, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting, in this very tough verse, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, you read that at face value, you say, that's not fair. Why is he blaming the great-grandchild for great-granddad's sin? That's like Silas being blamed for me. It's not fair. But that's not what he's saying. And I think you Bible students know that. He will by no means leave unpunished visiting. God visits every successive generation. Now, two things to note about that in Exodus and in other places where, where it talks the same thing. He keeps loving kindness to thousands of generations. So even if he only blamed people to the third and fourth generation, it's still marvelous. Do you understand what I'm saying? Grace goes to thousands, but he's only going to blame you know, three or four generations down the line. So even that would be wonderful if that's what it was saying. But it's not. What he's saying very clearly is God comes to every generation and visits. And he visits the sins of the Father. What does that mean? He comes to see, are you still following after the sins of the Father, or are you following after the Father? Is this generation doing what the previous generation did? I'm going to come myself, and I am going to come as a witness in visiting to see. So the reality is God isn't showing up and going, blame, 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 blame. He's showing up and saying, where's your heart? Where's the heart of this generation? Where's the heart of this generation? And he's done that since the creation of the world. No generation. He says it very clearly through Ezekiel. The sins of the father are not visited on the son. And the son is not responsible. The father's not responsible for the son's sins. And the son's not responsible for the father's sins. He says the soul who sins will die. But he visits every generation. Paul is doing the same thing now with Corinth. He's coming back on a visit as a witness so that every fact might be established. And he says in verse 2, back in uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance, to those who have sinned in the past, and to all the rest as well, who are all the rest? Probably those who were acceptant and tolerant of all those other people's sin. So he's speaking to the sinners and he's speaking to those who are like, that's eh, okay, let them sin. He's talking to everybody. And he says, I say to you in advance that if I come again, I will not spare. Daddy's coming home and the belt's coming off if it needs to. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, he says, verse 4, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. He died pitifully. And yet... His power was at work simultaneously. As we talked about Sunday, Colossians 2.15, disarming the rulers and authorities and making a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. That happened on the cross, that moment of massive, divine, eternal power in the weakest moment on display in all of eternity, and that in Jesus. And so remember that the power of God, the fullness of that power in Christ came to a head as he bore the crown of thorns on his head, as he bore the nails in his hands and feet, and finally the spear in his side. And remember Paul then says, 1 Corinthians one twenty three, we preach Christ crucified. And then he says, because it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. By the way, I wonder if Paul is drawing another possible parallel here. When twice he underscores, this is the third time I'm coming to you. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Just as Jesus came back on the third day in the power of God. So Paul is saying to Corinth, this is the third time. I came the first time in weakness and in fear and in trembling, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. I came the second time and that was difficult. I'm coming the third time and I am coming in power. And I am coming representing Jesus. Better get ready for final exams. I think it's what Paul is indicating. Verse 5. So he says, Test yourselves. 
to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Where do your eyes go when you read that verse? Now I'm not going to implicate you, but I know where my eyes went. Fail the test. Alarm bells start going off in my mind. Fail the test. Suddenly I am back, I'm a freshman in college, and I did not study. And I am looking at the paper just going, Oh Lord Jesus, come quickly. I am going to fail this test. And you read it in that verse, and I think that's kind of a human inclination. Again, maybe not you, but that's right. Fail the test. I don't like verses like that. Wait a minute, there's a test? Pop quiz? Yep. And it's the last test before the final. And Paul is saying, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Now, a couple things to understand about this verse. Back in verse 3, we learned that the Corinthians had been demanding some kind of proof. Since you are seeking the proof of Christ who speaks in me. But Paul turns this whole thing around. They're saying, prove yourself to us. And Paul says, examine yourselves. You want proof? Look at yourselves. Examine you. Now, before I take this any further, how about you and me? Are you in the faith? Examine yourself. Now, that's a really foolish question to ask a crowd of Bible students. Are you in the faith here tonight? You're going, well, I probably wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night if I wasn't in the faith. But examine yourself anyway. How's your walk with Jesus? How's your relationship with the Lord? Is Jesus here in you? Because that's what Paul says. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? So examine yourself. Is Jesus in you? How do I know? Well, it's not science. And it's not even religion. It's intimacy. It's intimacy. It always has been. It's not about being fruit inspectors, you know. How much spiritual fruit do I have? That'll prove that I am in the faith. You know, well, sometimes the fruit's just not ripe yet. You look at the nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. I can tell you what, there are a couple of those that are looking pretty tasty on me right now. There are a few of them, but, I mean, they're barely a bud, you know. And depending on the season, it could be different. We're not called to be fruit inspectors or or schedule coordinators. How's my schedule with the Lord? Am I on my knees every morning for a devotional time? Because if I'm not, I'm not in the faith. You're missing it. Or even a spiritual accountant. Well, I give a lot. Or I don't give anything. How's my faith? It's terrible! Yeah, if you use all those measures. But if you use this very simple measure, is Jesus in you? Do you know Jesus? If you know Jesus, you're in the faith. And what's amazing about this verse is Paul is not saying that Corinth failed the test. He's saying they passed. He very clearly is saying that. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Well, then why does he add, unless indeed you fail the test? Well, there's only one way to fail the test, and that's if Jesus Christ is not in you. That's so simple. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's as simple as my relationship with my wife. How do you know Cheryl loves you, Rick? 30 years. 30 years is pretty good. Yeah. I know when I get home, she'll be waiting there for me. And I'm going to get on her case for not being here tonight. (laughs) How do you know? You know, that their parent cares. How do you know that you have a friend relationship? How, How does Jeff know... That I'm still his friend. And we've been friends a long time. Right? How does he know that I haven't stopped being his friend? It's a stupid question. And by the way, and I I say this with with all the love that I can muster, when a Christian says, I just don't know if Jesus is in me, that's a stupid thing to say. You either know or you don't. 
It's pretty basic. Well, I mean, I, I love Him and I believe in Him. Okay. So, so what are we talking about here? If I, didn't, I didn't feel Him today like I did the other night at worship. Yeah. I don't always feel passionately, you know, droolingly in love with my wife either. That would be gross. I mean, it really would, wouldn't it? Bobby's looking at me like, drooling this? What, what would you do that? I'll tell you what, when we, well, no, I, I'm not going to go down that road. Do you still worry, though, about it? I know, I know it's so simple to be in Jesus. Do you still worry about it? Let me give you a couple of real quick simple tests. Number one, Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit testifies. God tells you if He is in you. You know, He is not a surprise guest. He's not hiding out in the closet of your heart and you don't know until one day you come home and He jumps out and surprises you. I mean, you know. You know He's there because you've invited Him to be there. And His Spirit testifies with my spirit. I'm a child of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so we may also be glorified with Him. He tells me, Galatians 4, 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, the question is, do you have the Spirit of Sonship? Do you consider yourself a child of God? That's a very simple question and a simple way of determining, do I have Christ in me? I do have the Spirit of Sonship. Why? Because my Father loves me. With my sons, and I have three sons, my three sons, (laughs) Corey, Hayden, and David, guess what? They are not sons because they have chosen to be. They are sons because I have chosen for them to be. And as their father, I love them. They know that, you know why they know they're my sons? Because that's what I call them. That's, that's my word for them. That's my word for them. If I'm talking to them, I always say son. It's just that's the word that comes out. It's the word my dad used with me. And they're my sons. And they know they're my sons, not because of what they have done, but because of my love for them. So to have the spirit of sonship is simply to say, you know God loves you. Do you know that? Do you know that? Yes. Amen. All right. Do you have the spirit of sonship? Here's the second question to ask. Do you have the hope of glory? How do I know if I have the hope of glory? Very simply, when someone starts talking about Jesus coming again, you start to smile. You get that little buzz of excitement. That, that's the hope of glory. Sneaking out. Colossians 1.26, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations and now has been manifested to His saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if Jesus is in me, I have the hope of glory. If Jesus is in me, I have the spirit of sonship. It's very easy to know. That Christ is in me, in my heart, in my thoughts, in my life. And if that's the case, I pass the test. It's pass-fail, by the way. That's it. You either pass or you don't. I used to love pass-fail tests in college. Those were the ones I never studied for. It's pass-fail, man. How bad could I do? I think I only failed like one of those. If Jesus is in you, you pass. That's it. By the way, Paul's use of this phrase, unless you fail the test, is not a suggestion of doubt. He's not saying, Corinth, unless you blow it big time. No, it's a statement of irony. He, he, again, is being ironic. He knew and he had expressed again and again that Christ was in them. He knew that. He declared that. That word, fail the test... Fail the test, it's one word in the Greek, it's adokimos. And it means literally, unless you're a reprobate. Adokimos is reprobate. It means depraved, condemned, literally damned. That's what adokimos means. What had Paul said about Corinth? What had he declared about Corinth? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Such were some of you, but you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Examine yourself not to see if you're good enough, because you're not. Examine yourself to see if Jesus Christ is in you. To have a relationship with Him and you pass the test. Well, verse 6. Paul says, But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. What's he saying? I hope you see Jesus in us. Follow, again, the brilliant reasoning of Paul. Corinth was itself proof of his apostolic legitimacy. The fact that there was a church there proves that Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. If they are not disproved, if they are not depraved, it can only mean that he is approved as an apostle. Right? Back in 2 Corinthians 3.2, he says, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. No, Paul didn't fail the test any more than Corinth had. Verse 7, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. And again, Paul is pulling back into this I'm a nobody place. You know, he's saying it doesn't matter if I'm approved or not approved. The question is, are you? And I think we need to get that into our heads in the church. It doesn't matter if a pastor falls or not. It doesn't matter if some church leader says something offensive to you or not. It doesn't matter if you think that guy or that woman or that person is walking with the Lord or not. What matters is, are you? Are you? You don't have to worry about someone else in comparison. Just, are you walking with the Lord? Paul says, we, we could even seem unapproved. It wouldn't matter. But what matters is, Are you approved? And he says that. I love verse 8. We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Why? Because the truth stands. Always does. There is an absolute truth. And His name is Jesus. There's no taking apart and destroying the truth. And Paul says, you know, the truth is here in spite of liars and deceivers and, and false teachers that come along. In fact, he may be twisting the knife a little bit again against these hyper-apostles. But the truth is always here. And I would say to those who... And maybe it's been you. Maybe you dropped out of church for a while because you were hurt by somebody. I I see a lot of that, Les. I mean, don't we? A lot of people say, "I'm I'm not coming back. Why? Well, because she did this. Susie, why'd you do it? No, I'm kidding. And I hear that kind of thing. What I would say to those who are in that position, listen, truth remains. And the lies are going to die off. Give it time. That which was deceptive, that which was wrong, it's going to fall away. The truth, I can't do anything against the truth. The truth stands. And it will be here. And sin... It's going to be done away with. Lies, they will die. The devil himself has a determined end. Doesn't he? Lake of fire, man, he's going down. But truth is forever. Because truth is Jesus. And he said, you will know the truth, John 8, 32, and the truth will make you free. Verse 9, For we rejoice that when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. Or we rejoice for this reason, he says, This we also pray for, that you be made complete. Or literally, we pray for your completion. He might say, we pray for your perfection or for your sanctification. We pray for these things. These things really do matter to us. And then he says, for this reason, I am writing these things while absent. So that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up, and there it is again, for building up and for not tearing down. That's the purpose of this letter. That's the purpose of Paul's apostleship. He's bringing this letter, and we've called it the letter of comfort, even though within the letter of comfort there is some exhortation and there is some sarcasm and there is some serious warning, but it still is a letter of comfort because Paul is building up. 
He's building strength into Corinth. He would say to Ephesus, chapter 6, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. There is comfort in the strength of the Lord. And by the way, speaking of the strength of the Lord, what is our strength? The joy of the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. I, I just, I love that verse. I mean, that is a standout. I remember as, as a young boy, I remember, I remember my dad's laughter. I remember when my dad was in a funny mood. I remember when he played with us. And, and his joy made me, I could take on the world. And that's the deal. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Be strengthened in the Lord. I came for building up, Paul says, and not for tearing down, for strengthening. And he says in verse 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice! Be made complete! Be comforted! Be like-minded! Live in peace! And the God of love and peace will be with you. Rejoice, he says. Now, this verse, we're going to come back and look at it. It's a beautiful little benediction. So we're going to look at it specifically on Sunday. We're going to let it ride until then. But I do want to point out this word rejoice appears in the Bible over 230 times. As, by the way, a command. What do you think is the heart of the Lord for His people? Rejoice, man. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And again, I will say it. Rejoice, Philippians 4.4. Well, greet one another with a holy kiss. We need not deal with that tonight. We've talked about that. Don't do it. (laughs) Unless you can be holy, which most can't. Not in this culture. No, you know, this is, we talked about it with the letter to the church at Rome. The greet one another with a holy kiss. This is, this is a familial affection. It's still common in, in places in the Middle East. Still common in places in Greece. You know, in fact, it's common in Belgium where talking with Valentine, she said, because my family were big huggers. She had to get used to that because that's intimate. That's weird in, you know, French Belgium. No, they kiss each other on on the cheeks. And I'm like, don't you come into my house and start kissing me, you 18 year old girl. (laughs) That would be inappropriate. So, you know, it's, it's culture, but it's about brotherly and sisterly affection. Greet one another, he says, with a holy kiss. And he says, all the saints greet you. All the saints greet you, Paul says. It's so beautiful. The hagios in the Greek. That's a word you should all know. The hagios. You don't have to know all the other weird Greek words I throw out, but hagios is a good one to know. It means the holy ones. And it is either translated holy ones or saints in the New Testament. There's a parallel word in the Hebrew for holy ones, for saints as well. But in the New Testament, the hagios, and these are those who have Jesus Christ in them. Anyone who has Jesus Christ in them is a hagios, is a holy one, is a saint of the Lord. And as we said, you don't have to go through all the you know ritual to get there. You don't have to be dead for a certain number of years to be considered a saint. You are saints right now. Saint Rick. I haven't met a St. Bernard, but I'm sure I will someday. We are saints, the hagios of Christ. We are those who have Jesus in us. We are those who are going to go home with Him in the rapture of the church. We are those who will return with Him in His glorious appearing as He comes to establish His kingdom. Jude 14, Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, so the earliest prophecy we have in writing, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. Saints, Hagias, you, me. And he says, all the saints greet you. So all the saints greet the saints. And the word greet there means embrace. Saints embrace saints. You ever run into someone in an airport and discover they're a Christian and immediately you just like them? It's that kind of thing. You run into someone in the grocery store, you find out they're a believer. You walk into a bookstore and someone's in the Christian section and you know them, you're like, I didn't even know you you <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like this little moment of joy and you're rejoicing in the Lord together. It's an embrace. And the saints embrace the saints. And we ought to embrace the saints. And by the way, we ought to embrace the saints even if they go to another church. Right? Isn't that okay? I mean, 
as opposed to what I used to do. You know, you go out to dinner, you wouldn't leave a tip, and they'd ask you, Are, you're a church group, and you didn't even tip us. Well, we're the Baptists. <laughs> the saints embrace the saints, and we love each other, and we embrace each other. That's, that's just the deal. Verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And as Paul concludes, he concludes with the Trinity. And note this, their ministries. That is, Jesus ministers to us grace. God loves and He is love. And the Holy Spirit creates fellowship. That's what they do. And that's all the power any church really needs. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for this letter among so many. We thank You for continuing to lead us through Your Word. We thank You for the blessing it is to be able to read these and, and to have Your Spirit disseminate this for us and, and seed our hearts with it and explain and draw us, Father, and empower us even in our weakness. Thank You for Your Word tonight. And we bless the name of Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.